0: Hi everybody, it's Derek and this is Foreign Exchanges for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. Uh, We have a few anniversaries. Uh, On February 13th, 1945, the Siege of Budapest, uh, one of the battles of World War II, ended with the Axis surrendering the city to the Soviet Red Army and allied Romanians. Uh, Casualties were high on both sides, but uh, at this point in the war, Uh, Those were casualties that the Soviets could withstand while the Nazis really could not. Uh, Some 38,000 civilians are estimated to have died from combat and starvation during the nearly two-month siege. Uh, Also on this date, uh, Allied forces in the West began their extended firebombing of the German city of Dresden, which lasted for three days and killed at least 25,000 people. Uh, There continues to be a debate over the legitimacy of Dresden as a target and of the justification for such an overwhelming air campaign against what was predominantly a civilian population. Uh, on February 14th, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell filed a patent application for the telephone. Uh, on the same day, Elisha Gray filed a patent caveat, which is uh, not an application. It's more a notification of an intent to file an application uh, for the, for a similar technology. Uh, the U.S. Patent Office eventually informed Gray of the conflict and he withdrew uh, his caveat uh, because he wasn't as far along as Bell was. Uh, Gray later won a court decision Thank <laughs> you. Uh, Finding that the information in his caveat was leaked to Bell and some of it uh, appeared in the latter's application. Nevertheless, Bell became known as the inventor of the telephone. And the reason that many of you probably haven't heard of Elisha Gray is because he did not become known as the inventor of the telephone. Uh, On February 14th, 1943, this is the anniversary of the start of the Battle of Sidi Bouzid. Uh, Sidi Bouzid is located in uh, Tunisia, uh, central Tunisia. is the first of two battles that were fought in this region It was followed immediately by the Battle of Tasserine Pass. Uh, these are noteworthy because they're the last two battles, really, that the uh, Axis won in North Africa. And they're the last two uh, uncontested victories uh, in the long uh, career of German General Erwin Rommel. Uh, the uh, Basically, the, the Axis was able to take advantage of the fact that the U.S., which had just entered the war, was still not really ready for prime time. They had a lot of officers who didn't know what they were doing. Their logistics weren't very uh, ironed out yet. Uh, So they were able to take these two victories as part of an effort by Rommel to drive the allies out of Tunisia. Uh, Unfortunately for him, I guess, uh, unfortunately for the the Nazis, I suppose, uh, the U.S. learned pretty quickly from its mistakes here. It replaced the ineffective officers, it improved its logistics, and from this point forward, uh, the North African campaign went decisively in the Allies' favor. Uh, Also on February 14th, 1945, just a couple of years later, Franklin Delano Roosevelt hosted uh, our good friend uh, Saudi King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud aboard the USS Quincy in the Mediterranean. Roosevelt was sailing home from the Yalta Conference. He took the occasion uh, of this uh, rather lugubrious uh, trip back home to hold several face-to-face meetings uh, with a number of regional leaders. Uh, This particular one was the first ever face face to face meeting between a Saudi royal and a U.S. president certainly would not be the last. Uh, The agreement that they concluded, uh, which is is the source of the uh, military protection for oil uh, arrangement, uh, created the basic contours of the U.S.-Saudi relationship uh, that has survived, although it may not uh, be quite on those contours anymore uh, to the present day. Uh, On to the news. There's a little international news of note, I suppose, in that a United Nations panel of experts has concluded that um, the man who goes by the name Saif al-Adel, who may be a former Egyptian military officer, who, among other things, helped train the 9-11 hijackers. uh, There's some some dispute over his uh, exact identity, but this is the one that most Western analysts seem to go with. Uh, He's apparently replaced, according to the UN panel of experts, uh, the departed Ayman al-Zawahiri as the leader of al-Qaeda. Uh, There's been no announcement to that effect uh, from al-Qaeda, which could be for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, uh, the organization al-Qaeda may not want to embarrass uh, their Afghan Taliban hosts by acknowledging that Zawahiri is dead and therefore having to acknowledge that he was living in Kabul uh, when he was killed. Uh, And two, Saif al Adil is by most accounts living in Iran. So announcing that he's taken over could also, Raise some questions that both Al Qaeda and the Iranian government would rather not uh, have to answer. On to the Middle East and Syria, with the confirmed death toll from last week's earthquake. Um, now approaching, uh, I, this is I, when I wrote this, it was approaching 40,000. Uh, I believe it's already topped 40,000. Certainly by the time anyone reads or listens to this, it will have top 40,000 uh, confirmed dead. Uh, a humanitarian relief convoy crossed from Turkey into northwestern Syria via Bab as salama which is a uh, village along the border, uh, for the first time since that crossing point was closed by the United Nations in 2020. Uh, whatever skepticism I might have had when I mentioned the possibility of opening additional aid corridors in yesterday's newsletter appears, thankfully, to have been misplaced. Uh, there's been some speculation that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad agreed to temporarily opening the, uh, additional border crossing uh, aid corridors because of some backroom deal or the possibility of a backroom deal. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to assume that. He's already getting something in return for doing this in the form of both positive positive PR, and the perception, uh, and maybe reality, that he was the final decision-making authority, Uh, not the UN, not Russia, not, you know, whoever, uh, in opening, reopening this crossing. And, and, you know, I think there's at least one more crossing that may be opened. And that does bolster his claim to control uh, northern Syria, even though much of it is technically under rebel or Turkish control. Uh, It sort of makes it clear that this is his... Uh, Still his territory, he's still president of the country. Uh, So even if he – and even really if he does get some other concession over this, I think under the circumstances, given the acute need for aid, it was certainly worth uh, whatever he will get. Uh, in Turkey, uh, uh, there's a piece from World Politics Review's Lina Khatib, which is a little bit outdated. Uh, some of it, she talks about the situation in Syria, and it's it was written clearly before these additional border crossings were opened, so it's a bit uh, dated in that sense. But she does a, a pretty solid job of outlining the political issues surrounding the Turkish government's response to the quake. i just read you a couple of paragraphs here. Uh, the disasters were natural, but not all of the fallout was. The humanitarian catastrophe caused by the earthquake has been worsened by corruption, politics, and geopolitical rivalries. In Turkey, for instance, an earthquake tax was imposed in the aftermath of the Izmit earthquake of 1999, raised from a surcharge on telecommunication services. The funds were meant to be set aside for disaster relief, both for Izmit and in the event of future emergencies, but it is unclear where the money was spent, with some reports claiming it was in fact diverted to public works projects run by Associates of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, there are also claims, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing Raising now, but there are also claims about uh, corruption in the construction process. Um, You know, uh, uh, regulators that maybe were bought off or had, for some reason, uh, looked the other way as shoddy buildings were being put up. Uh, There are complaints about the slow emergency response. All of this matters, of course, because uh, Erdogan is is facing re-election in May. Uh, assuming he doesn't postpone the election, which I think uh, may increasingly be a likely outcome here, but we'll see. Uh, In Israel-Palestine, Israeli security forces killed a 17-year-old Palestinian during an arrest raid in the West Bank's Tubas district on Tuesday. Uh, At least 50 Palestinians now have been killed by Israeli forces so far this year. Uh, Also on Tuesday, a Palestinian man who was left quadriplegic after being shot by Israeli forces in January of 2021 uh, died of complications related to that shooting. Uh, In Iran, Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi visited China on Tuesday, where he was welcomed by Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, with some warm words about the level of solidarity and cooperation between the two countries. Uh, Raisi will be looking to deepen the latter, particularly on the economic front, where China has become the only real international lifeline for heavily sanctioned Iran. He'll likely get some new business deals out of this trip, uh, but I would expect Xi to do what he usually does, with respect to Iran, which is to focus on short-term projects uh, and avoid making any firm long-term commitments. And if that's how this goes, Raisi will presumably come away somewhat frustrated by that outcome. Uh, in Asia, and uh, Armenia, Armenian Foreign Minister Ararat Mirzayan is reportedly going to visit Turkey on Wednesday and will be the first visit by an Armenian Foreign Minister to that country since 2014, and another sign that relations between the neighbors are apparently improving. And Mirzayan's agenda will include a meeting with his Turkish counterpart, Mevlut Cavusoglu, uh, and a trip to southwestern Turkey to tour the earthquake zone and the Armenian rescue and aid operation there. Uh, the Armenians temporary opened their overland border crossing into Turkey over the weekend in order to send aid to the quake zone. That crossing had been closed since 1988. Uh, Again, another sign that, that, you know, they're warming up to each other a little bit. Uh, In Afghanistan, Afghan security forces raided an apparent Islamic state safe house in Kabul overnight, uh, killing at least three alleged IS members and arresting a fourth. In Pakistan, the Pakistani government has jacked up the country's natural gas tax from 16% to a whopping 112% at the friendly request of the International Monetary Fund. This is one of many tax increases the IMF is demanding. We mentioned this uh, in Monday's newsletter before it will release uh, the $1.1 billion in bailout funds it's been withholding since December. It's certain to worsen inflation, which is already high, and its effects are not going to be confined uh, to wealthy Pakistanis, which is something the the Pakistani government has said it would try to do to limit the effects on most people and just kind of tax those who can afford to pay. Uh, This isn't that. Uh, but with foreign currency reserves dwindling, Pakistan is dependent on this next tranche of IMF relief and all of the wonderful austerity uh, that apparently will come with it. In India, Indian authorities raided the BBC's offices in Mumbai and New Delhi on Tuesday. Uh, ostensibly, this was over some sort of tax issue, but the real problem is seems to have been the BBC's decision to air an unflattering documentary about Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi a few weeks ago. Said documentary focused on Modi's handling of the 2002 Gujarat riots when he, as then governor of Gujarat, uh, either condoned or may even have helped to facilitate uh, a pogrom against Muslims uh, in the wake of a Muslim attack on a group of Hindu pilgrims. Uh, Modi's government attempted to suppress the documentary, but there's a piece by uh, Al Jazeera's Aditi Agrawal, uh, where she notes that uh, it only wound up generating more buzz, uh, actually, for the documentary. It was a real backfire type of situation. Uh, several members of the ruling Bharatiya uh, Janata Party uh, have suggested that the BBC's Indian operations could be shut down altogether. Uh, this tax allegation could be the first step toward that end. In Africa, in Tunisia, Tunisian authorities have been on a bit of an arresting spree in recent days, targeting politicians who have run afoul of President Kais Saied in one way or another. Two more of Saeed's political opponents were arrested on Monday, and it's believed around 20 have been taken into custody since Saturday. Uh, the arrests make it clear, as though any more evidence were needed, that Saied is ruling Tunisia effectively as a dictator. He's tried to justify the arrest as part of an anti-corruption campaign and has accused the detainees of somehow causing recent. And food shortages and price increases, without explaining how they're supposed to have done that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they invaded Ukraine. Who knows? Uh, in Rwanda, uh, Africa as a country, Jesse uh, Africa a country's Jesse D- Damba Diamba uh, breaks down the deportation agreement between Rwanda and the United Kingdom. Uh, there's uh, it's an interesting piece. I won't. Uh, I'll just read you a couple of things here. In April 2022, the governments of Rwanda and the United Kingdom signed the migration and economic. development. Development Partnership, uh, a plan to deport tens of thousands of asylum seekers crossing the English Channel to the East African nation in exchange for additional development funding. Uh, Included in the partnership is the initial investment of £120 million by the UK to boost the development of Rwanda, including jobs, skills, and opportunities to benefit both migrants and host communities, according to the British Home Office. Uh the deal has prompted significant backlash across borders from global advocacy groups, church leaders, and human rights advocates activists. It is so obviously uh, just a, a deal to dump these people in Rwanda, and, and you should read the whole piece. Uh, but it's it's really just kind of a despicable arrangement, it seems to me. Um, there's still legal hoops I think that need to be jumped through before uh, actual deportations take place. But uh, just the fact that the UK government entered into this deal. Uh, is is just skin crawl. kind of makes your skin crawl. Uh, anyway, uh, I digress. Moving on. Uh, in Mozambique, uh, the mining f- firm Gemfields Group has reportedly shut down some of its operations in northern Mozambique's Cabo Delgado province following an attack by Islamist militants on the, visit, uh, the village of Nairoto over the weekend. Uh, the company's very large nearby ruby mine, thankfully, I guess, is still operating. Uh, the Islamist insurgency in northern Mozambique Uh, which has been claimed by Islamic State, has disrupted several resource extraction operations, most prominently offshore oil and gas exploration, but also uh, mining operations like those run by gemfields. Uh, On to Europe. Uh, There are several Ukraine uh, stories of note. Uh, Ukrainian officials are advising any civilians remaining in Bakhmut to go somewhere else at their earliest convenience, suggesting they're not hugely confident about being able to hold on to that city for very much longer. There are only around 5,000 civilians still believed to be in Bakhmut, and one assumes that they either really want to stay or really don't have the means to leave or else they would have already gone. The Ukrainians are now preventing aid workers from entering the city, which will make it more difficult to evacuate any remaining civilians who need assistance. They also reportedly blew up a bridge near Bakhmut on Monday to try to complicate the Russian advance, which is another indication in itself that the city is in serious danger. In addition to the Russian advance around Bakhmut, there are indications that Moscow is preparing once again to ratchet up the air war over Ukraine this has created a new sense of urgency uh, among Western governments with respect to supplying Ukraine uh, with air defense systems uh, and could increase pressure on those governments uh, to exceed to to Kiev's demands for fighter aircraft. Uh, to the latter point, the Washington Post reported on Monday that the Biden administration is trying to impress upon the Ukrainians that the gushing spigot of Western military aid to which they've become so accustomed over the past year is unlike. Likely to remain wide open indefinitely. Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives have hinted at drawing down aid to Ukraine, uh, though I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, it's And it's also unclear how much longer other NATO members will be able to keep supplying Ukraine with arms, even if the will to do so remains constant. The fact is that some of these countries are literally running out of ammunition. Um uh, Ukrainian defense minister, meanwhile, Alexei Reznikov, uh, named three new deputies on Tuesday as part of the fallout from a recent scandal uh, in which the Ukrainian military was found to be uh, significantly overpaying uh, for food supplies, which means somebody was skimming that overpayment off the top and uh, putting it into a bank account somewhere, most likely. I mention this mostly because these appointments suggest that Reznikov himself, who was rumored to be on the verge of getting sacked as recently as last week, is probably going to stick around now for the foreseeable future. I imagine his job is uh, safe at this point. Uh, In Moldova, Moldovan authorities closed the country's airspace on Tuesday over reports that, wait for it, a balloon-like object was observed near the Ukrainian border. Uh, The Romanian military reported a similar sighting and actually scrambled aircraft in response, although nothing seems to have come of that. Uh, The Moldovan airspace closure lasted less than an hour and a half, but it did come amid an increasingly wild series of allegations from the Moldovan government regarding Russian interference uh, in Moldovan affairs. Uh, Moldovan President Maya Sandu accused Moscow on Monday of plotting a coup in Chisinau uh, based apparently on intelligence that the Ukrainian government claims it has recently uncovered. Uh, There does appear to be evidence of some sort of Russian political influence operation in Moldova, uh, whose breakaway Transnistria region is also a Russian dependency, Uh, but whether that rises to the level of coup, uh, I would say, is unclear. In Finland, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg appeared on Tuesday to broach the possibility of Finland entering the club without or at least ahead of Sweden, telling Alliance defense ministers in Brussels that it was more important that both countries become members, quote, as soon as possible, end quote, than that they become members simultaneously. To, to this point, so far at least, both the Finnish and Swedish governments have insisted that their respective national security uh, depended not just on joining NATO, but on joining it together. Uh, But Sweden's bid is, as we know, a barely treading water right now, thanks to Turkish opposition, while Turkish officials have intimated that they're prepared to approve Finland's application. Uh, Finnish officials so far, uh, however, have not suggested that they're prepared to go it alone. We'll have to see if they cave on that. On to the Americas. There's just uh, the United States uh, to discuss today. Uh, The U.S. government has – you're going to want to sit down for this. The U.S. government has apparently come to believe that the three objects its military shot down over the weekend were A, not Chinese, and B, not doing any spying. Uh, Instead, there seems to be an emerging consensus that these were all research or commercial devices of one sort or another. Don't worry, though. There's no indication that we're going to start trying to figure out what things are before we shoot at them. that would be, frankly, un-American. You may also be interested to learn that the F-16 that shot down one of those objects, the one that was detected over Lake Huron on Sunday, needed two shots to get the job done. Uh, This may mark the first time in history that a military jet had to dogfight a weather balloon, but I cannot say that uh, for certain. The errant missile, fortunately, didn't cause any collateral damage, but—and maybe this is just me—the Pentagon might want to account for the possibility of stray missiles the next time it tries to shoot one of these things down. Just uh, just something to consider. Finally, uh, writing for the New Republic, Samuel Moyne looks at how unrepentant interventionists like neoconservative grandee Robert Kagan are reinventing their, uh, I would say, somewhat discredited message uh, to shed the, in an effort to shed the baggage of their re- disastrous uh, recent record. Uh, he writes here: uh, by the late 2000s, the consensus was that neoconservatism, as the writer Jacob Heilbrun observed, quote, not only destroyed conservatism as a Political force For years to come, but also created an Iraq syndrome that tarnishes the idea of intervention for several decades, end quote. In fact, a new left and new right demanding military restraint emerged, reemerged from the blowback carnage and defeat to which Americans have seen their wars lead. The isolationist right roared into prominence thanks to Donald Trump's call to end endless wars and attempt to withdraw troops around the world. And inspired by peace candidate Bernie Sanders, the left gained a hearing for its critiques of liberal internationalism uh, since 1989, with figures such as Trita Parsi and Stephen Wertheim uh, launching initiatives for a policy of restraint. Uh, and yet, in this desperate past, Kagan the most sophisticated spokesman for the neoconservative foreign policy school has gotten another hearing. In the last few years, Kagan has reconstructed himself as a defender of America's liberalism against threats within and without, and helped to reforge a centrist pact that approaches world affairs from the shimmering belief that the greatest armed power in history is the exceptional and indispensable force for global freedom. That belief has, had been tottering on the precipice, but the Ukraine war restored its appeal overnight. How fortunate for these guys. F. Scott Fitzgerald was wrong. Neoconservatives, at least, can get a second act in American life. Kagan's new history of U.S. foreign policy in the early 20th century, The Ghost at the Feast, shows how he has repackaged his beliefs for an era of recently challenged, but suddenly renewed optimism about America's exceptional role in world affairs. The book is a study of the years leading up to World War II, a period that both liberals and neoconservatives like to use to prove that sometimes America's only responsible option is military intervention. Yet, as Kagan's Kagan perceives through the years of rejection of U.S. warmongering before 1941 and the great debate about whether to intervene at all before Pearl Harbor. He inadvertently recognizes the power of the historic and recent alternatives to U.S. militarism. While he is re- he is regaining influence, his history can equally be read as cautioning against militarist lessons so often drawn from the past. Uh, it's an interesting piece. Samuel's a, a, a very good writer and, and very thoughtful, so uh, I would definitely check it out. And Kagan as he says, continues uh, somehow to be uh, relevant in the foreign policy debate despite, uh, you know, let's say everything that's happened for the last 25 years at least. Uh, On that note, uh, that's all for us tonight. Thank you, as always, for reading and or listening to the newsletter. Thanks to those of you who are subscribed to foreign exchanges, especially those of you who have made the jump to become paid subscribers. And until next time, Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.